0: Welcome back to Geek Warning, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. I'm here with Dave Rome and James Wong. Ronan is taking a well-deserved week off after a very long, hard, uh, sleepless trip to the Classics last week. We've got a lot to chat about today. We're going to be getting into some of the catastrophic tire failures failures at Perrier Bay last weekend. I know there's been lots of questions about this. Uh, we're going to chat a little more about some of the Campagnolo rumors and facts that we've got now uh we mentioned this on a previous episode we're gonna get into a bit about a thermoplastic wheel brand james has been riding these things We'll get into those later in the show as well and then some new trek road helmets some grid skin clothing some new garments we got a whole bunch of news for you this week we're gonna get into all of it in today's geek warning welcome to the show dave Thank you. Thanks for having me. And welcome, James. Hi, Kaylee. There's
1: a lot of dog barking going on upstairs here.
0: <laughs> I was wondering if that was at your house or that's, that's my at my house. I can't
1: really tell. Those are those are <laughs> those all all are right. my two very loud dogs.
0: That's all right. Well, let's uh let's kick off. Let's let's jump right into this. Let's jump into kind of the story of the moment, I guess, even though it is a couple days old now. Uh some of the the catastrophic tire failures at Perry Roubaix. Uh we had a lot of questions about this pop up, like in our Twitter feed and Instagram feeds and things like that. Particularly after, uh, was it an Israel Premier Tech rider, I believe, that had a particularly catastrophic uh, front wheel kind of explosion that happened on the Arenberg. That was one um, of them. That, that was one of many. One of many. I, I should say that like. So, Jay, uh, James, Ronan and I and Johnny were at the exit of the Arnberg. We're kind of like we were standing where all the, the mechanics and swineers and things uh, wait at the exit. And and it wasn't any more broken stuff than you see there in a, in a particular year. But there was, as always, a pretty large heap of broken stuff. So, James, I think we wanted to address this and kind of dig into what people were seeing, right?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think certainly in social media, there has been this. I'd say perception. I think I'm going to call it a perception because we don't necessarily have like hard facts. But um, there's been a perception that um, because most of the men's peloton, in particular, had switched to tubeless tires instead of tubulars, uh, and based on some of the stuff that we saw on TV watching the, watching the race, um, there's definitely a perception that tubeless tires have been more prone to failure than tubulars. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because. Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, the, the the reason why teams have moved to tubeless tires over tubulars is basically just for rolling resistance reasons, because there's all this data now showing that they're faster and the teams just, they want to go faster. And like year after year, the finish times at Roubaix keep getting shorter and shorter. Um, and I mean, you could argue that riders are getting fitter and faster, but you could more easily argue that the bikes are getting faster. So um That is why teams have moved over to tubeless in the first place. But as far as all of these uh, apparent tire failure sort of thing, uh, again, without having actually, you know, a mole inside the team, um, but knowing how tubeless tires work, uh, we have a couple of things that we're looking at here. One, um, we have to remember that Payer-Roubaix is so far and away from any sort of normal riding environment for these types of bikes. It's just such, such an incredibly fringe case. It's just, completely bizarre. No one in their right mind typically would be rotting stuff like this like these people do. So, that being said, at the pressures that these people are rotting these tires at, um you tubeless tires, tubeless road tires in particular, they're 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 tight on the rim. And with the way tire tubeless tire rims are shaped now, it's generally pretty hard to get a tubeless tire off the rim even when it's flat. So I want to I want to get that out of the way first and foremost. So while it is very possible that at very, very low pressures, you could burp a tire and just have the whole thing just blow out, um, I think what has been far more likely is that an Arnberg, it's no matter what you do and no matter how well you engineer the wheel, if you're running a carbon wheel, you are going to smash into a cobble, you are going to break a wheel. Now, when this happened with tubulars, it wasn't as visually dramatic because the tires were glued onto the rim. The t- you know That rim could be cracked in six places, and that tire would still, presumably still be stuck on there for the most part. Um, but with a tubeless setup, when you have a rim failure, as soon as you have a compromise in that
2: tire bed circumference, it's all over. Yeah. I was going to say that um, this outside of Perry Bay, is commonly seen in downhill world cups for example uh in practice and in uh qualifying uh you'll see multiple riders come down every single day with a tire wrapped around their frame in some regard that's that's kind of come unstuck from the wheel uh from from a wheel failure uh so it's it's really i guess that reinforces james's point which is it's, it's a very common failure mode uh, if the rim fails, if, if you hit a large enough rock strike. And obviously that rim failure mode presents itself at Roubaix more than any other event in road cycling. Uh, and is probably the, the one example in road cycling that where we see such rock damage done to rims. So yeah, for me, there, there wasn't anything too peculiar about what we were seeing because it's, it's just so common in, in other disciplines of cycling.
0: I mean, it's the primary reason why Roubaix was one of the last races to get a lot of tubeless, right? It was about a, a half a year, a year behind. Uh, because the concern was that you couldn't ride the wheels flat or you couldn't ride the tires flat. I, I do think that the the inserts have certainly helped that. And there were a lot of teams running inserts this year. Renner and I were kind of wandering around figure, trying to figure out who exactly was on them. But uh, Christophe Laporte is a perfect example. We're pretty sure he was on inserts. And I watched him... Come out of the Armburg forest with a flat rear tire and take the the left hand corner at the exit of that. Which they take, they're still going very fast. Uh, took that corner with a completely flat tubeless tire with a with a uh, insert in it, and you know didn't fall down, didn't rip a tire off. Was essentially able to ride it almost like it was a uh, like a tubular. So I do think that that's a solution that we'll probably see more and more and more of at, at Roubaix probably not so much on and the rest of professional road racing, but I, I was actually kind of genuinely shocked that we didn't see more of it this year. There's not a whole lot of downside. Uh, and yeah, it'll, it, 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 it brings back into the equation that sort of special ability that tubulars have, which is you can ride them even when they're, when they're toast. So, so but anyway, point, point being that um, I think people are looking
1: for some, like super dramatic or like, you know, gotcha sort of thing that they can pin on tubeless or hookless or whatever. And I, I personally just don't think it's there. I think, I think it's just the, this sort of thing where when those things fail catastrophically, it's a lot more visually dramatic. Um, And again, just by virtue of the fact that the tire is not glued onto the rim, when you have an actual rim failure, then well, you're done. But again, given one area taking another area but i don't think i don't think the riders are going to be going back to any anytime soon even after some of the wheel failures that we saw this
2: year i think it's just going to be this sort of thing where wheels just continue to get better and and their setups continue to get better right like some of the teams that did have the the failure where the tire came off the rim will probably be on inserts next year that'll uh increase that retention and i know from uh speaking with a few mechanics in the world tour that when once you use a certain setup with an insert those mechanics are now cutting the tire off the rim when that tire is done they're not they're not going through the effort of actually removing it because it is actually quite difficult to remove so wasteful, yeah wasteful (laughs) but uh yeah not not any different to tubular in terms of uh the waste associated there but uh yeah it's a some of these are a very secure fit all right well let's let's move on from this because
1: again like i said uh Kaylee and Ronan are going to have a very big deep dive episode on Pair roubaix Tech, but that's just something I wanted to touch on at the beginning of the show just because so many people have been asking about it. But that, that's where we stand on that. But uh, moving on from there, um, we had reported – or I guess we've been talking a little bit about um, some Campagnola patents. Um, a contributor of ours, Alan Cote, has uh, he put an article up about some really interesting patents that he – Uncovered for Campagnolo, and it's been rumored for quite a while that Campi was going to move over to a wireless setup for their electronic stuff, which is good considering uh, EPS is um, old. Um, but um, I know in, in previous conversations that we've had about this, Ronan in particular was really bummed about the fact that Campagnolo seemed to have gotten rid of the thumb actuation for their shifter. And Ronan, Campagnolo has clearly heard you because in the last two weeks— they have reverse course. Well, no, just kidding. We just didn't know enough about it back then. But what what Alan has discovered is that there are there are a, a set of paddles on uh, down by the brake lever where there normally would be for Camping Yellow. But now there's two buttons there. So it's kind of Shimano-esque in that sense. Um, but what he's discovered is there are still thumb buttons up top. So now you can do both. So now not only do you still have the thumb buttons, so it's you know very traditional camping in that sense, but now it's not going to be impossible to upshift when you're in the drops as it is,
2: we can't be EPS at the moment. So that seems pretty good to me. We're talking about buttons though, as of a versus a a paddle, right? It is, it does appear to be buttons. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But can you you like take the thumb button off or something? It doesn't look like it. It looks like
1: it, it looks like it's basically a button. So, um, for, for anyone who is listening to this, who has been around long enough to remember, uh, what was it called? Ergo brain. Is that what it was called? I think it was ergo brain. Um, whatever Campagnolo's integrated computer the thing computer. was, yeah. um, that computer was actuated with a little button on the inboard side of the of the, sh- of the shifter lever, bu- uh, shift lever body. And from what I can tell, the shift actuation on this new Campagnolo wireless setup is actually going to be kind of
2: similar to that.
0: Mm.
2: Shimano had a version of that as well, didn't they? They did. They did. With the um, same placement of button? Oh, dear God, what the heck was that called? I can't remember now. <laughs> um. Yeah, anyway, yep. it looks like, I'd imagine with the two buttons being there, you'd be able to configure what yes, buttons flight do. Yes, flight deck, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
0: This is why we do, I, we, we forgot to mention at the beginning of the recording here that mm. we are once again uh, doing this show in front of a live studio audience on the internet. Uh, and the nice thing about that is when we can't remember what something's called, our lovely members remind us. It's great. Kaylee, uh, can you talk
2: a bit more about this live studio audience? How do you how do you become a live <laughs> member of the audience? It,
0: you reminded me to plug. I appreciate that. Uh, mm. Well, our, all of our all of our live studio audience audience here are members of Escape Collective. Uh, you can do that over well at the website escapecollective.cc, and one of the first things you'll get is when you you get that first sort of onboarding email, you'll get a link to join our discord our private uh members only discord bit of a kind of a clubhouse kind of thing not the clubhouse that's like the weird twitter thing i like a like a clubhouse you know in a tree that that more of that kind of vibe <laughs> big clubhouse uh and yeah it's like a, it's like big a clubhouse, clubhouse with the future. big
2: tree big tree <laughs>
0: Big tree, big clubhouse of the future, and what, yeah, one of the one of the things that we do is we do we do live events, we do live podcasts. We've done some live kind of like race viewing slash podcasts. Like uh, Abby Mickey had Iris Lapidell on watching the end of Wevelgam a couple of weeks ago. We do stuff like that uh, because it's it's this it's this lovely little piece of technology that allows us to basically hang out with all of our members here. And t- we're gonna at the end of today's show, uh, we'll take questions and. That'll be sort of like the last 15-20 minutes of uh, of today's podcast. So if you're not already a member, please go do so. Join all of the lovely folks in our live studio audience today. Uh, yeah, head over to escapecollective.cc and thank you. Yeah, thanks for that, Kaylee.
1: Just a <laughs> couple of other little things on the Campagnolo patent stuff before we move on. Um Couple other things that Alan had uncovered is uh, both derailleurs seem to have removable batteries a la uh, SRAM axis. Uh, but what's interesting for the Campagnolo stuff is the front derailleur, the battery mounts on the forward side, not the back. And the big thing for EPS fans, especially if you are a fan of running bigger tires, is uh this isn't explicitly called out in the patent, but it sure does appear to be the uh sure it sure does appear that the rear tire clearance is gonna be way better on this iteration of electronic camping than it has been in the past, and that's been a big limitation for this uh moving well up until now really recently uh, up until now really because e p s hasn't really changed um we don't really know anything about the brakes presumably they're still they're still mega based, which is fine Campagnolo's hydraulic disc brakes have been i would say the best of the big three. I think, personally. Um, no word about stuff like a rim brake option, like how many sprockets on the rear, anything like that. We don't really know. But anyway, point being, big news here, is that it does look like it's a confirmation that it's wireless, and we still have thumb buttons. So we'll see what happens. I'm pretty eager to find out more about this one.
2: Do we have any... Um, uh, I can't wait. Do we have any hint as to when this might happen? Because the rumors have been floating around since like 2020. Perhaps earlier. Do we uh, do we think it's a this year thing, a next year thing? Uh, you know,
1: I don't know. Uh, to be completely honest with you, even if it's really close to being done, like even even it's to the point where it could be launched this year, I would almost prefer that Campagnolo sit on it for another year and just continue to iron out any bugs. Because one thing that I have to say about original Axis was um, that. SRAM has a history of being pretty quick to market with stuff, um, and they were noticeably more careful with, uh, with I, I guess, first-generation ETAP, I should say. Um, there were prototypes floating around in pro ranks for a while. Like It was very clear that, that SRAM was testing the crap out of it. And uh, I think they were better off because of it, because first-generation ETAP, all things considered, like, it really didn't have Mm. many issues at all. Like, a lot of the big dramatic failures that people were anticipating just didn't happen. And I think it's because they took the time to really test it and really kind of work out bugs, and I hope Camping Yellow
2: does the same. So, no, we have no indication on timing. Whereas with Campy, I mean, we had three generations of EPS in pretty quick succession to each other. You know, like, over the time that shram had their one well shram didn't have a group set that time electronic but shimano i mean basically had one iteration campy had three in that time so yeah
0: none of which worked particularly well
2: i mean they worked well they'll just when they didn't work it was a nightmare (laughs) to figure out why they didn't work yeah (laughs) when they when they were humming then they were you know very nice functioning group set but uh yeah it was but anyway
1: yeah, hopefully Campagnolo sits on this one a bit and just makes sure it's really, really fully baked. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think Campagnolo is certainly not in a position where they can get away with having a big grand release of a new EPS electronic group set and have it not go well. So, um, yeah, so we'll see what happens there. Um, but we have some other, like, less fun Campagnolo news, although it's not entirely related to Campagnolo. Uh, we have a recall announcement coming from Open. Um, they have recalled basically any bike that was ever purchased with, um, with Eckhart. Um, and the reason for that being, uh, open, they have a interesting internal cable, well, I guess partially internal cable running system. Uh, they call it multi-port. Um, a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with that, where the, all the lines enter into the frame on the top of the top tube, right behind the stem. A little silly in my opinion, anyway. Um, But it's a little aluminum plug that goes in there. And, um, open says, quote, due to the construction of the camping Yolo hydraulic brake hose, it is more susceptible to damage than other brake hoses, unquote. And, uh, quote again, the rear brake can fail posing a crash hazard, unquote. Um, I contacted Gerard Vrooman about this and unfortunately haven't heard back from him by the time we recorded here. Um, Campy has responded and says, like, our hoses are fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. And as far as I can tell, the main culprit here is that Campagnolo uses Magura hoses, which are five and a half millimeters in diameter instead of five millimeter instead of the five millimeter diameter that Shimano and SRAM uses. And it seems like open maybe didn't account for that when they started speccing these bikes. Um so they're saying that you just have to replace the rear brake hose and have to use this different multi-port insert, which to me suggests that the hose is fine and the problem was with the port so just heads up anyone out there who has an open with Ecar um you need to get that rear brake hose replaced and a new multi-port insert
2: quick question on this uh with opens design is is the hose like basically being kinked at the the entry point through that through that port is that sort of the the issue here? Uh, it's a little bit
1: unclear for me mm. um open does say that if you turn the bar too far to i think i think they say that if you turn it too far to the left that you do run a risk of damaging mm. the hose um but just based on how that multi port setup is arranged I mean there is sort of like a a fairly sharp right angle at the top of the insert and then especially if it's sized for a five millimeter hose instead of a five and a half mil hose i mean obviously it fits or else those bikes couldn't have been built um but if it's too sharp of an edge, then yeah, I, my my guess is that it's prone to kinking. But in my in my experience, you know, Magura and camping camping yellow hoses are definitely not any more susceptible to damage than anything else. Uh, I think it's just a more matter of the port sizing. But anyway, just a heads up.
2: Okay. All right.
0: We talk about thermoplastic wheels. This is on the list here, and I'm I'm very intrigued. And I also saw you post about this the other day, James.
1: Yeah. So. um Traditionally carbon fiber composite stuff out there, most of it's thermoset in the sense that you've got carbon fiber um mixed in with this uh kind of like a two-part epoxy essentially. And then when it cures, it's it's done. Like it's just fully baked, you can't really do anything with it. You can't really can't really turn it into anything else. Um but we have certainly been seeing this rise of thermoplastic composites, particularly in the mountain bike world. Um, and these instead of using a uh a a non-reversible resin it uses sort of like a a long chain polymer that you can essentially melt and cure and remelt um, and uh, a lot of these rims that i've been using particularly for mountain bikes um uh, they're made by a company called css composites in utah and the reason why they've becoming they've been more popular is because thermoplastics are generally more impact tolerant than uh thermoset stuff And then you you also get things like kind of like a more muted and damped ride, which actually is tangible from my experience. Um, But anyway, this this company CSS CSS Composites that's been making rims for uh, like Chris King and Revel and um, Night Composites apparently um, and Evil, they have launched their own in-house aftermarket brand called Forge and Bond. Um, which is kind of a hint to how these rims are made. They're kind of elusive about it. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they're going out on their own aftermarket. They have a gravel and a mountain wheel set to start out with. Um, uh, what's interesting, I think, about the this brand from a business perspective is they are an OEM manufacturer, like I said, for those other brands. And they're pretty coy about how their wheels are appreciably different from what they make for other companies. I mean, they're visually different, um, but as far
2: as how they're different performance-wise, I'm not entirely sure. My understanding with the other OE purchases of these rims from CSS, like, for, say, Chris King, was that they were effectively allowed to use almost their own design requirements. Like, uh, I think it was Chris King that had announced that their rim was different to say what Revel bikes were selling. Like, same technology, probably same manufacturing process, but like a Almost like a different layup, I guess is what you'd call it. And that they had done their own testing and that they had their own requirements. So I suspect there are subtle differences between many of these rooms and that Forge and Bond are probably perhaps, you know, at the cutting edge of of what they've learnt from others, uh producing rooms for others and uh perhaps turning that into a product for themselves. Uh I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. But I, I think the main the most interesting thing with this is is the manufacturing process. And for me, it's your thermoset, the the way most other carbon rooms are made, is very labor intensive because uh, those carbon sheets of prepreg uh, are typically hand laid and then go through molding and then often post-processing. Whereas this process can be a lot more automated. And uh, while the pricing doesn't indicate this as such, but I think in future we'll probably see this technology really helped to bring the price point of carbon down to a, uh, not quite a aluminium level, but somewhere in between what we expect between aluminium and carbon. Yeah. I think once, uh, you
1: know, once the initial capital investment costs are kind of more recouped, that sort of thing, then the, then the per part piece can, can come down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as, as I was mentioning earlier the the, the name of the brand forge and bond kind of alludes to how these things are made. Um, Thermoset carbon fiber rims, the way those are made, as Dave mentioned, they're like all the pieces are uh, pieces of um, of prepreg are hand laid into a mold. Um, It's you got like this two piece clamshell thing. It's all shut and then it's heated or it's 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 cooked under heat and pressure. It comes out like sometimes it's trimmed and finished and that sort of thing. Um, This forge and bond rim. um, I don't know if this is exactly how they're doing it for other brands, but essentially what you have is because I mean and this is unique to the way that thermoplastics can be reformed and remelted um, The plies are they're cut by robot they're they're laid into this mold by robot um but you have each rim essentially made of separate parts. you have uh each half of the sidewall you have the tire bed um, I'm trying to think if that's there may be another piece around this book that. Uh, the circumferential piece that goes around the spoke bed. That part I can't remember, but either way, you have at least three pieces and they're essentially made flat in like this flat, like donut ring sort of thing. And that's the first step. And then, uh, once you have that part set up, then the individual pieces are placed into another mold and they're remelted and reformed and reshaped to make a complete rim. Um, and I guess one thing that Forge and Bond is saying is that because of the way these rims are constructed, um, there is apparently very, very minimal waste, um, like on the order of like, I don't know, 10, 15 grams per rim, something like that in terms of total material. Um, and what's neat is that whatever scrap is produced, um, and it also includes rims that come back to the factory for warranty repair or something that's broken or whatever, they can essentially just chop it all up and then remelt it and stick it into a mold and make something else out of it. Um, they're not going to be making rims out of it again because the fibers are all chopped up at that point. Um, but right now, what they're doing is making these really cool little molded carbon fiber tire levers. Um, and I mean, it's definitely downcycling. It's not like making another new thing out of the same new th- or out of the same old thing. Um, but it's still pretty cool. I mean, they're they're. They're making a big deal about the sustainability aspect of this thing, and they're making a big deal out of the fact that their scrap material is very valuable to them because they can use all of it.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, again, like that's very different from Thermoset, which starts as a a giant reel, like imagine a giant reel of fabric, and that's put on a cutting table, and then they cut out the the shapes that they need from that, and inevitably there's always overlap and excess, just like they make um, clothing, basically there's always going to be scrap that they can't use and and that gets thrown away so some brands claim that they're say ninety percent efficient with with how they're using the the prepreg and uh, thermoset carbon uh, so there's only ten percent waste but that's that's still ten percent waste uh, so yeah thermoset for me um, sorry thermoplastic for me is is quite uh is quite an intriguing uh, path forward for the industry but James what are what are like what are the downsides here? Are there downsides I mean, as compared to thermoset? Thermoplastic does tend
1: to be a little bit heavier, typically. Um, that is one big one, um, and then uh, a lot of carbon fiber experts will say that thermoplastic stuff is just not as stiff. It's just not as structurally. It's just not as structurally ideal as uh, as thermoset. As far as like making like the absolute lightest and stiffest stuff out there um but for for rims i'm not sure if that's something that you really necessarily need or want all the time anyway um i I would say that a lot of times you don't necessarily want a stiffer rim um a lot of the stiffness comes from how it's built anyway but but in terms of ride quality there's a lot to be said for a rim that's a little bit softer um as I said before, test rides of, of this wheel set and other thermoplastic stuff I've, I've ridden, it does seem to have like a more damped and muted feel. It's not necessarily softer. Um, it's almost sort of like just quieter, which is a little bit weird. Um, but aside from that, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I'm definitely not a composites expert, but I don't see, aside from the weight thing, I don't know of a lot of downsides to thermoplastics versus thermoset.
2: Have you heard of or seen any durability concerns? Not yet. Okay. I mean, I'm sure
1: they'll come up, but as of right now, like nothing, nothing real big has popped up. So um, I do have a set of these wheels in for review right now. I know the embargo lifted on this yesterday, and um, but I just don't have enough time on these wheels yet to really do a, a proper review. Um, and since we're trying to avoid just kind of doing kind of boring press release flips over here, um, yeah, we're going to wait just a little bit longer until I have a little bit more time on these, but that should come uh, probably before before the end of the month, I'm guessing.
0: On the subject of wheels, I want I want to move this on because I want to make sure we can get to questions at the end here. Hmm. So, uh, next on the list here, some interesting new rovals.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, they're definitely new. Uh, they are. Uh, yeah, roval's got two new wheel sets. So there's the alpinist SLX disc, which is the alpinist is their their low profile roadway, uh Road wheel, which is designed for really weight savings uh ridden to a world championship win last year uh and they've got the s l x is actually an aluminium version, which is new so uh I guess on paper these actually sound kind of cool there's claim weight of fourteen hundred and eighty five grams for the pair uh although Roval do specify that that's a sample weight, so you could probably imagine the the production weight might go up a little bit uh 24 millimeter rim depth 20 millimeter internal rim width uh with hooks and at the center of it is a dt swiss 350 hub which i like uh and a us 800 retail price uh for me this this does feel sorry what's that for both of them yeah for you get a you get a front and a rear for that price uh for me, this feels like an OE play. It's it's the sort of wheel that you'd expect to find on their probably Altegra ish or lower, maybe a one hundred and five di two kind of bike. Uh, but it seems like a pretty good wheel, and a big fan of that that hub at the center of this.
1: Uh, I would I would push back on the OE play thing because this does this does kind of move into the territory of companies like like Boyd and Hunt and stuff like that, because yeah. a, a lot of those companies do have less expensive kind of higher end aluminum wheels. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen a whole lot of that from the bigger brands and for Roval to come out with a kind of more premium, presumably aftermarket aluminum wheel
0: is, is it interesting
1: development? Let's just leave it at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So now this I, I, I wonder how much aftermarket market there is for a wheel like that really though. Right. I mean, Hunt would probably know. have the data on that, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we could ask. We could ask. I mean, just—that's just purely anecdotal, but uh, ah, yeah. Carbon wheels are cheap enough now, and and come with the cachet, mm. rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. And and I, I still feel like that's the direction most most folks will probably end up yeah. going. Yeah, and and aerodynamic even, benefit even in at the carbon. sort of eight hundred thousand buck.
2: Yeah, 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 eight hundred. Yeah, uh, I think it's yeah i think the main thing is you're probably not going to get much aerodynamic gain if any with these wheels so i think that's where carbon will still uh hold uh hold favor but uh the other wheel from roval they've released uh, a new terra clx2 wheel set which is their top of the line gravel wheel set uh that now drops 50 grams to a claim weight of 1250 grams and uh, basically, all they've done there is they've used the hubs from the Alpinist CLX wheel, so their lightest carbon wheel, uh, which is a, a Roval hub. It's a lighter hub. Uh, it's still running DT Swiss 180 internals, uh, but that, that drops the 50 grams. The rims, spokes, everything else remain the same. Um, but yeah, nice little subtle update there. Yeah, and that that hub
1: is, if you look at it, it's essentially just a lot more aggressively machined. Mm. Um there's
2: just a, there's just a lot
1: a lot less hub in those
2: hubs. Yep. Yep. So um yeah, fifty grams less, everything else the same. It's a good wheel set.
1: I'm pretty excited about that one because I, I will say that the Terra CLX, the first generation version, was one of my favorite gravel wheel sets that I've used. Yep. Uh, mainly because they're they're just so tangibly light. Uh thirteen thirteen hundred grams for the first gen one, twelve fifty for these um they held up to everything that i've I, i'd been able to throw at them i mean it's not like i was smashing them into into rocks when the tires were flat or something any um but uh but they were really light they felt really good uh rode well um seemed like they were plenty strong um yeah yeah pretty pretty eager to see how those are and 1250 for a set of wheels that can handle that sort of stuff and ha- offer that kind of internal width is pretty impressive
2: yeah, I'm a huge fan of those wheels. I've I used the the Terra C L version, which is the cheaper version, same rim as the C L X, but with the three fifty hub and big fan of those wheels because you get a twenty five mil internal rim width with uh with hooks. What a novelty. And uh yeah, it's just a very nice versatile wheel that. So um yeah, I've tested them extensively, haven't had any issues. So it's it's high on my list as far as gravel wheels go. Looks pretty good.
1: Uh Dave, we got some new computers that just
2: hit the market too, don't we? We do. Garmin's uh, been busy. Uh, they have released the new Edge 540 and Edge 840 computers, which now are very, very similar to each other, but with the main difference being that the 840 adds touchscreen uh, ability or doesn't add, but. The 840 offers touchscreen uh, ability, while the 540 just rem- sticks to the, the seven buttons uh, that can keep your fingers very busy. Uh, the, the 840 also keeps those same buttons. So that's really the only difference. There's about $100 difference between those two computers. Uh, as far as other new things, uh, you've got USB-C charging now. Uh, there's multiband GNSS. So uh, probably more stable and faster pickup from satellites. Uh, probably the the fun one that i like is that the the mounting wings are now replaceable which uh, i think is is a nice feature for anyone that has worn out those mounting wings on a previous computer and the the feature that everyone else is talking about uh is that they now come with the option of solar charging so you can increase the battery runtime to as much as 60 hours if you just stand in the sunniest part you can find
1: yeah, and they also have uh what is it called a like a climb pro feature, I think, which or well, is it climb climb pro free or free climb pro? Anyway. Uh basically where it sort of just predicts how long the climb is gonna be that you're that you just hit. Um It's quite Karoo it, too kind of feeling that very Karoo 2 mm. Um so I mean obviously it's not going to be completely accurate all the time it's not going to read your mind especially if you are kind of on more windy roads or on a climb that has some options but mm-hmm. uh still kind of neat to be able to see exactly how much climb is ahead of you i know i like having that kind of info
2: yeah I, i've uh, i've been using a crew too lately and i i'd need to spend the time to adjust the settings because that climb feature keeps um taking the place of my power figures which is uh not what you want when you hit every climb but uh that, that's that's a new problem. <laughs>
1: I'm not su- I'm not sure I want to see my power figures on a climb. I think I'd rather just know when it's over. Um mm. but uh we're not gonna talk a ton about this one because we don't actually have one on hand yet. Um, but we are mm. working on getting probably an eight forty into Ronin's hands. Um
2: so stay tuned on that one. We'll have some more more for you on that soon enough. My my quick question on this one uh is the five forty and eight forty, the only thing that really separates them is the touch screen and a hundred dollar difference. My question is, is why this is a tough one? Cause I know, I know James is just going to shut me down, but my feeling is why not benefit from the economies of scale and just have the one model with the touchscreen and let the uh, manufacturing powers allow you to hopefully bring that price point down. Thoughts? I am a hundred percent positive that Garmin has done this
1: math and mm-hmm. knows that they will make more money. By splitting that offering into two different ones, into a more premium and a slightly more affordable version, mm-hmm. than they would if they just offered the one. I am a hundred percent positive that they have done that math. And
0: for me, else? well, I'll uh, just say I hate touchscreens.
1: Yeah, I mean, so. i i I used the eight thirty. I used the eight thirty and the five thirty pretty extensively, and there were definitely times when I preferred the five thirty. Mm. Uh, just because I don't always like using a touchscreen, but I eventually liked to. I eventually ended up using the 830 more, uh, mainly because I just ended up locking the touchscreen a lot. I got into that habit a lot more, It's just like you know, drop a sweat didn't screw up the the functionality or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, it's basically just a matter of preference. And you know, I would also say that you, know, you can make the argument that yes, it's only a hundred dollars difference. But at the same time, if I said to you, "Hey, Dave, Venmo me a hundred bucks right now," you'd probably not really want to do that. <laughs>
2: Depends. What do you want it for? Yeah, it
1: does, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's only it's only 100 bucks. Send it over. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so I am I, sure that Garmin's done that math. So I, yeah, I okay. think uh, if only, yeah, like Kaylee said, you know, Kaylee doesn't like touchscreens. Other people don't like buttons. And I think it's important probably for Garmin to offer that difference. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're going to sell more of them as a result anyway, though.
2: It's worth adding that there's actually four models on offer here because each of the the 540 and the 840 are also available without the solar functionality, which saves about $100 as well. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's in my mind, I don't know, maybe like a a 540 without the solar feature and then the 840 does have the solar feature. Then you have four into two models. But hey, I'm not a Garmin product manager, so I'll be quiet now. All right, well, let's move on because we want to get through this stuff so we can hit some audience
1: questions here. Um, Next thing I kind of wanted to talk about quickly, uh, Trek has a couple of new road helmets, and I'm sure people have seen them on the heads of team riders, uh, Trek Segafredo in particular. Um, You've got the kind of lighter weight Velosis model, which is their, again, like lighter weight, kind of more all-rounder. And then you have the Ballista Aero model. Uh, So the Velosis is uh claimed weight is 260 grams for a medium cpsc model the big thing is that the ventilation is a lot better um the Belista, the the aero model is a little bit heavier 275 still not that heavy um but the big thing is that it's supposedly 10.1 watts faster than a Velosis at tt speeds which is interesting is that helmet's got a very distinctly long and tapered tail um with a pretty novel flow through design but i think the the two biggest things on these helmets, in my perception, is that um, you get MIPS air, uh, no wave what,
2: cell. What What about the no biggest no innovation wave in thirty years, James? What happened to it?
1: Uh, apparently it wasn't big enough.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah,
1: apparently it wasn't big enough. Uh, but MIPS air and both of those, no wave cell, um, and both of them get five star ratings from Virginia Tech, which is nice to see. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting is that these are branded as Trek helmets, not Bontrager. Hmm. Um, this is something that we picked up on when uh, trek released a whole bunch of new clothing last year or maybe two years ago um, trek seems to be moving away from the Bontrager brand for soft goods uh, it looks like it's still keeping it for components and wheels and that sort of thing but for yeah for soft goods and helmets i would presume shoes are probably coming next uh, they are they're moving over
2: to the trek brand that's very interesting to me um i remember probably mid 2000s was when they roughly phased out the trek brand for all their helmets and for all their yeah soft good line Uh, i i recall being in a trek store and and seeing that stuff and at that point it probably probably late 2000s became under the Bontrager brand so yeah it does it does interest me that they're they're moving away from that but i guess it's not too different to what their their competitors are doing in, in the way of say specialized and giant and uh a few other names that that have their house brands so yeah i mean
1: it's interesting it's interesting because there are clearly two schools of thought here because you on the one hand have like specialized and roval and like roval like specialized gets annoyed if you if you even just like mention roval and specialized in the same breath like if you even dare to suggest that roval is part of specialized they get they get annoyed because they they have this big thing like there's separate companies and separate staff and engineering and so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. Like let's get real. It's 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 a specialized wheel. Um mm-hmm.
0: boxes say specialized on them.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like is, is Robots headquarters the in
0: Morgan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the headquarters in Morgan Hill? Yes, it is. Um but then uh, Silly. Yeah. And like you know, Trek had, I, I guess certainly they felt that there wasn't enough cachet with the Trek brand name at some point, which is why they started moving everything over to Bontrager. And yeah. even before that is why they had that icon brand for their uh, like component range, like back in the 90s. um But yeah, what's interesting now is that they clearly feel like there is enough or like more brand recognition with Trek than Bontrager. And they feel that Trek is just a stronger brand name, particularly in that category. And they're moving back to it. So,
2: was, I wonder if part of it was actually the the strategy of like that if you didn't want a Trek bicycle that you could still ride Bontrager shoes or a Bontrager helmet and not feel like you're mixing brands in a in a dirty way. Uh, whereas like, you know, you ride a Trek and you wear specialized shoes, it kind of, you don't look very pro. Um, not that there's Maybe? any, not that fine. that bothers me, but I know it does bother <laughs> I, I like consumers. I,
0: I, I, well, but I, I don't know. I feel like that's a that's one area that that Specialized has actually been successful in that they've got their shoes they've got their shoes all over the pro peloton for example everywhere I know I know lots of people who run Specialized shoes that aren't riding a Specialized bike yeah, and amazing. The, the sort of yeah. irony is like that that's why that's why these brands get all angry about us referring to Raval as a, as a piece of Specialized or Bontrager as a piece of Trek as, as they they want that additional market right mm. but like I mean the, the shoes prove that it's possible if it's a really good product which specialized shoes are it's a fantastic product then people will ignore brand name to some to some extent so yeah i don't know i'm just i, I mean this this feels like a good move to me like i think bontrager probably just confuses a lot of consumers honestly like it's just it just yeah totally different yeah. brand name that a lot of you know new cyclists probably never heard of before i, I had a friend who thought it was pronounced like in the French way for a long time, Bontrager, mm. uh, and I spent There's like a no year wrong answers trying to figure out what on earth he was talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about his Bontrager shoes. Yeah, it's I, like that's the kind of confusion that can come from from kind of needlessly splitting these things off. I think
2: I do think the the Bontrager differentiation and Roval as well is kind Bontrager Bontrager uh, has kind of worked to their favor because <laughs> I remember working in a shop which was a Pinarello dealer and they used to spec. A lot of their custom, a lot of their dogma builds with, uh, Bontraje, uh, wheels. And, uh, <laughs> like it, it, it's just because it was a fantastic wheel choice. And I think Roval fits in that same space. So I wonder if Trek will, on this path that they're on, keep Bontrager as a, uh, component oh, no. brand. <laughs> I can't unhear it now. I can't undo it. Um,
0: <laughs> we'll keep it as a component <laughs> brand, and then
2: Trek takes over for soft goods, or, or whether yeah, whether we see this this brand starting with a B come to an end.
0: I don't know. We'll see. We should ask Keith what he thinks of his name just floating around in the ether like this. You know, funny, It's up. funny that you mentioned Keith because
1: Kelly, I mentioned this to you the other day. Is I actually reached out to Keith. Bontrager <laughs> on Twitter the other day, um, because I actually wanted to see if he wanted to be on for a podcast guest to kind of just talk about bike tech in general, um, but also talk about baking because that seems to be a, a growing hobby of his. Uh, and he said actually he hasn't. He's sort of stepped back from the bicycle world as of two uh, as of twenty fifteen, uh, mm-hmm. essentially when his partner was uh, struck by. Uh, a bus driver in somewhere in the UK um, and uh, she ended up as an amputee. So um, he has been primarily dedicated to getting her back on a bike and getting her life back in order and stuff. Um, so he's been busy. Um, so anyway, point being, I don't know if he would, re- I don't know if how much he would really care what's happening to his name right now.
0: Yeah. I've gotten that sense over the, over the last couple of years that he's, his his attention is elsewhere. Uh anyway, we can move on from Trek and Bontrager. Any of the, any other news items that you guys want to hit before we get into what is on our minds and over the heads of our families? There was there was one left
2: like for, from James. yeah, there was
0: one left. I mean, we can
1: hit this one really quick. Um, the brand, Q- keep quick that brand clothing brand Q thirty six point five. They have a new range of clothing called Gridskin, spelled G R D X K N. Of course, all capital letters because vowels are evil, apparently. Um, but they use this. Uh, kind of intriguing Uh, they call it highly abrasion resistant cushioning layer of padding at key areas uh, which is apparently just sort of like this raised textured printed padding material that's on the inside of the like the shoulders and hips and stuff it's yet another attempt by uh, a road clothing brand to provide some crash protection Um, this one looks intriguing Uh, it's quite light and only adds about 20 grams supposedly uh, it actually looks neat. I, I I am curious if it might even add some sort of aero benefit because of that texture. And it's something that we're seeing a lot of attention on in clothing. Um, but uh, I'm I'm actually kind of intrigued with it uh, almost from like a mountain bike perspective. Like if you were to wear these bibs under baggies and then if you were to wipe out on your hip and something like that, like would that help at all? I don't really know how – I'm not – I haven't seen it yet. I don't have a sample in my hand yet, hands yet. I don't know how dense it is or how tough it is or anything. Uh, Q thirty six point five is certainly making a big deal out of this, but uh, it's it's something that came across my desk not too long ago that I thought was worth mentioning. And then we'll have samples soon. I think uh, I think Ronan's going to have a set pretty soon too. So maybe he and I will compare notes, and hopefully not not compare hopefully not compare notes of how they were sliding across the pavement.
0: Hmm. Uh, he didn't crash in the kermes that we put him in last week. I was very proud d- of him. D- despite and, that, and that was despite a slow puncture running like. Th- yeah <laughs> he had this puncture for like three days and and we've inflated it right before the race and i think i think he started the race with about 35 psi in a 32 mil tire I, uh, but it was wet in belgium so it was. Fun.
2: i would rather not go down. let ronan test this stuff because i'm pretty sure when he broke his leg he was wearing Asos's crash protection clothing
0: mm. true although he broke his leg by just like Putting All, his foot on the ground. No, like
1: falling right. over, like basically falling over in a cross like, raise, and like his foot was still attached, tipping over. Mm.
0: Ugh. Mm-hmm. No good. Anyway, sorry, no Renan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what is on your mind and over the head of your family? Let's let's start with Dave Rome.
2: Mm. Um, work stands. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mainly that I I don't understand why people are so passionate about race stands these days. So race stands being the the type of stand that capture the the fork dropout and then you support the rest of the bike by the bottom bracket shell. I just think they're so redundant these days. Like for the last 2 decades, you go to a mountain bike race, you go to a cyclocross race, you never see this kind of stand. It's only with the road teams. But now disc brakes you can't adjust a front disc brake while the bike is in the stand. So you end up doing it like with more than the hands you have and you end up hating life because your stand is stupid. Or you have a new modern bike with like an asymmetric <laughs> bottom bracket shell, which doesn't even fit the stand. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm all about stands that, that clamp the bike safely. Um, but I just, I just don't understand why people are still buying race style stands. James, thoughts?
1: Uh I have on very good authority why teams still use race stands
2: oh, I know uh, so you don't crack your frame, but
1: <laughs> yeah, so I have uh, one over here, and it's just annoying well yeah that, so so I hate it so this this very good authority that i that i'm referencing here has told me that essentially the reason why teams have used these things forever and ever and ever is that uh particularly once carbon frames became a lot more popular. Uh, much more widespread the team uh, the brands essentially told the teams that they will not cover these frames if they are clamped in a frame or clamped in a stand and that mm-hmm. includes even clamped in a, in a seat post stand um and so therefore teams have been using these these race style work stands forever and ever and ever um i guess in fairness when the bulk of their time is spent well, at least when they're at a race, stand, when, when the bulk of their time is just spent washing a bike, it is easier to wash a bike in a race style stand because you can just sort of like spin it around. Okay. Yeah. Um, but as far as actually working on the bike, yeah, race stands are kind of dumb. I'm with you there.
2: Yeah. And I think the the clamping of the bike, I think even at a world tour level, many mechanics would have been quite old school, perhaps working from the days of steel frames where you could clamp the top tube just fine. And perhaps they carried that over and were clamping the top tube of carbon frames which is an absolute no-no. So like on any modern bike, you really do need to clamp by the seat post. But that shouldn't be an issue if you're you're doing it sensibly. And then you've got adapter stands like the Silca Bell, which kind of support the frame in a safe way if the seat post doesn't offer a shape that's safe to clamp. Uh, So I I don't know. For me, I, I just keep returning to the fact that I don't understand the use of race stands. I think in a world tour sense where every bike from the team is the same. So you have the same through axle over and over and you have basically the same kind of bottom bracket. So you can set up your race stand to fit 20 of the same bike. I think that makes sense. But for anyone using these at home that might have more than, say, two or three bikes which where you need to adjust the stand to fit each one. Or a pro shop that is dealing with all styles of bikes. I, I just I don't understand why people are still buying these things. But hey, each their own. We
0: we have a we have an audience question on this subject. We want to briefly jump into the a Q and A and then pop back out. Now let's save it. We sure, could do that,
2: should we? No. <laughs> uh,
0: let's see if we can get up. Oh, Robert Robert just typed his question in here, so we can just read it. That's easier. Uh, Robert Barrows I'm taking an extended trip by boat I am bringing one of my bikes as well as a few spare parts and tools wanted to ask if any of you have any experience with that alt angle am I saying that right? stand that appears to be two clamps and a stick
1: (laughs) which Dave (laughs) of course has on hand
0: right now oh god of course (laughs) what you can't see podcast listeners is that Dave just literally pulled that out from uh, Magic. the little top hat where his bunny lives, and somehow <laughs> just <laughs> had it waiting. <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> we exactly. didn't plant that question. <laughs> I, I swear we didn't plant that question. All right, Dave. So your your opinion on this for Robert?
2: Uh, so Altangle they have they have two products. Um, there's the the hanger, and then the, I think it's the connect. Uh, so the hanger is the one that goes through a door frame. So you actually use the door frame as your uh, I don't know. Yeah. Your, the the central support of your stand and then from that um comes out a a clamp that you can clamp the the bike via the seat post uh the connect is actually uh off the hanger and it's it's literally just a clamp with a pole and then another clamp and it lets you clamp your uh sorry i'm not explaining this very well but it lets you clamp a pole onto any kind of uh upright object so if you've got like a a handrail or something like that you can clamp a workstand onto it and or like yeah a ladder or to a pole or a sign or whatever yeah yeah as long as it's kind of of a small enough diameter to clamp onto you'll it'll work uh so yeah it's it's tough to say for a boat trip which one if you have a door frame in a boat um depends on the size Big of the boat. boat yeah uh the the hanger is actually quite got a mast uh yeah the doorframe one is actually quite good uh it's quite stable um but you end up blocking the doorframe as a result of it so it actually does sit quite low down on the doorframe and you have, you do have to duck quite a bit it's it's a real game of limbo um don't leave it up permanently because someone will walk into it uh <laughs> And yeah, it is very. Ask
0: Dave how he knows. Yeah, ask me how I know.
2: It is actually very stable. It's very strong. Uh, it's as strong as the door frame. Basically, it's it's a pretty good product. Actually, I, I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, the Connect is something I'm about to review. Uh, it's it's much more simple, and it works as well as your ability to clamp it onto a strong enough upright. So if you've got a upright pole that actually has the right diameter and is actually strong enough to uh lever a bike off of then it is actually a very good option um and on a boat then yeah i think you'd probably find that sort of uh upright structure fairly readily so i'd i'd say go for it
1: oh robert has just followed up and
2: said it's a 400 400 plus foot ship wow that's a big boat okay but hmm. the door frames won't work wow yeah so yeah it just goes back that that connects the the one that you need to attach to a a pole um the pole needs to be a, a small enough diameter. Like for example, the the upright on a park tool shop stand, uh, which is I'm trying to remember the name. The PRS three, I think it is. Uh, that is quite a large diameter uh, shape. I'm struggling to think of the shape. Probably three inch diameter is my is off the top of my head. Uh, I think that's like six. It's like sixty mil or something like that. Yeah, it's not that big. Okay, uh, that's bought, for me. i found that. Borderline too big of a diameter for the hanger uh, for the Connect product. It it sort of almost slips off that, and you really need to clamp it on really tight. So it needs to be quite a thin structure that you're clamping onto. But yeah, James, have you used one of these?
1: I have a little bit. uh, They actually sent me a pretty early one. They have made some revisions since the since the one that they sent me, Um, and it it is yeah, like like you said, David, it is basically two clamps connected by a pole. Um and the one I have you can't rotate the orientation of the clamps relative to each other whereas the new ones you can at least rotate them like 90 degrees so it's a little bit more versatile. Um they also machined out the clamps on the newer one so it's not quite as like ridiculously heavy as the one that I have. Um it it is useful if you have the right setup. So yeah, if you have some sort of like upright thing that you can clamp this thing to that it's super handy but if you don't then not so much. But um but anyway, yeah, Robert, if you've, got some, if you've got something like that, that thing is very nice and small and tidy and compact, and it does work pretty reasonably well. Um, another workstand question that we have, if we're just going to stick to this just for a bit before, before I get on to what I have on my mind, a um, uh, question from David Watson. This is a good one. He said, uh, he's asking, how do you recommend putting a full suspension carbon mountain bike with a dropper post in a workstand? He said he can't really clamp to the post or the carbon tubes, and there's no space in the triangle for a Hero Bell frame clamp. Dave, mm. what are your thoughts on this? Because I definitely have a thought on this one.
2: I I clamp to the exposed part of the dropper, which is yeah, that's what, probably that's what do too. not ideal. But what I do, I, I make sure that the clamp is perfectly clean. So I'll use like isopropyl alcohol and clean the clamp to make sure there's no grit on the the clamp jaws. And then I'll just go ahead and clamp the yeah the dropper as as close to the base of it. Um, so therefore, you're you're reducing the the amount of leverage on it. But yeah, I mean, if it, if it's it the dropper post, it's designed to hold your body weight. So the reverse of holding the bike weight isn't such a big issue. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I do as well. And I'm, I don't worry about it from a
1: structural standpoint. Um, but I do, I do find that it's not always the, like the most secure place to grab it just because that exposed stanchion is typically pretty slippery. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've mentioned this to feedback before, um, but if I, have, if I haven't, hopefully someone there is listening because what I would love to see is a set of dedicated jaws that are essentially profiled to uh, kind of straddle that uh, the seal collar on mm-hmm. a dropper seat post. And granted, you do have different diameters of dropper seat posts, but most of them will be 30.9 or 31.6. And then the stanchion diameter is pretty consistent across most brands. Um, so I would love to see a, a jaw that is profiled to essentially have that seal head in the middle and then clamp the the kind of the upper part of the stationary part of the post and then the lower part of the stanchion all together. because that would strike me as a much more secure way of clamping a mountain bike in a work stand. You just need
0: a 3D printing about that clamp spot. I, I I have I have worked the collars loose. On droppers, before mm-hmm. doing that by clamping, well, no, but, but, if you, stick, but, it then, but, but you, you stick it in and then, you but, stick it in and then
1: actually twist to the left. But that's why you would have this profile job because you wouldn't actually clamp on the collar. Mm-hmm. There'd right. be there'd be essentially a cutout on that collar.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just mean like if I if I clamp, you know, bike sitting behind me, the epic. Uh, I've done that before, where without what you're talking about, if you try to clamp it on the lower part of the dropper post. I have accidentally unscrewed not like fully unscrewed those collars, but loosened them basically, because you got a quite a bit of leverage on it. Uh so I tend to just I tend to just clamp on the on the yep. the upper
2: yeah. And Mark H has just uh commented that uh sounds like a good use of a 3D printer. And I agree, I have actually seen 3D printed solutions basically in line with what James is suggesting. Uh yeah, you can I, I know people have done this specific to their bike and not a hard thing to print. So anyway, another reason for you, James, to get a 3D printer. Oh, don't even get me
1: started, let's,
0: dude. Let's move on to what's on James's mind. Uh, this is going to be a long episode, and I'm okay with that. Uh, let, yeah, what, what's, what's on your mind, James? Well, then we'll get to the Q&A. Uh,
1: well, uh, I guess anyone who's visited the site today will know that I've been thinking a lot about headset-based cable routing for mountain bikes. And uh, yeah, what's on my mind is that I think it's royally stupid. Like it's one of the stupidest tech developments <laughs> I have seen in the bike industry in the, in recent years. Uh, because you know, even I can accept that there are arguments for fully internal or fully concealed routing on a road or gravel bike. I mean, yeah, it like, look, it looks sweet. Fine. Um, a lot of those bikes are not going to see super adverse weather. Um, I mean, a lot of the people who own bikes like that are, you know, kind of tend to baby them a little bit. Um, and you know, yeah, yeah, they, they're kind of more arrow. You can make all those arguments, whatever. Uh, you can't make any of those arguments for a mountain bike. So for running those cables through out an upper headset bearing, just to like kind of tidy up the front end a little bit, is just stupid. Like it's just dumb because you still have lines hanging out in you know between the brake between the brake lever and wherever the lines enter the headset, and. It it just doesn't help that much, even if you trim those lines super tight. I mean, it's clear we're clearly in an interim situation right now because without question, the industry is trying to move to a point where they can conceal the lines on a mountain bike completely. And I hate it. Um
0: counterpoint. Counterpoint. Mm.
2: Looks cool. It does look cool. I actually have a hard hardtail with this, and to be fair, I chose this path knowing that I would be using wireless SRAM on it. Uh it looks cool. But James, the other (laughs) counterpoint, and this is going to only anger you more, and as it should, um, it's just an interim. the The exposed cable that you're seeing at the moment before it gets the head tube, it's just it's just temporary because the industry will eventually route that brake hose through the break through the handlebar and stem for you. So you know,
0: yay. Uh Uh, Our favorite old grumpy hater, Mm -hmm. Zach Edwards. Uh, This this exact topic. So actually, James's story was was sort of floating around my my friend, like, text chat this morning, uh, which Zach is on. And one of my friends uh, was very much in favor of this trend because he thinks it looks cool. And he's like, well, if, you know, people want to buy expensive bikes that look cool, that, that seems fine. Uh, the other side of it was the sort of... Uh, Zach was pointing out that the real danger here is this stuff starts to trickle down. Uh, because, you know, like people who, people buying $2,000 mountain bikes want their bikes to look cool yeah. too. So you could see it sort of trickling down eventually. But the problem with that is, is Zach brought up a, a, an example of some maintenance that he was doing. Somebody needed a new headset bearing. And instead of being a 15 minute job that would cost, you know, 30 bucks, it was going to be like a $300 service fee. Right. New, new, new hydraulic lines, new, new everything. Even more if 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 you were running uh, mechanical shifting. So you you know you then you look at a bike that's fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks with this technology five years from now, and to replace a headset bearing they have to spend three hundred dollars to do that, which is a sizable portion of the entire cost of the bicycle. And that's I think where we end up running into just real issues. One hundred percent. It kind of goes back to we've we've had similar conversations like this before at the high end. I, if you buy a ten thousand dollar bike or a fifteen thousand dollar bike i don't really care if you have to spend three hundred dollars to replace your your headset bearings and you probably kind of deserve that but also that if, 15, if, if you're buying a fifteen hundred dollar bike yeah ah, it's that's a that's a that's bad news for it's just it's just bad news for getting any any new people into the sport well also that fifteen thousand dollar
2: bike has more than likely wireless shifting so you really only have say one or two brake hoses to contend with if you need to replace the headset there's, there's not a lot of downside to it and that person can afford the higher service bill but yeah at the, at, to your point Kaylee at the lower end that bike absolutely does not have wireless shifting it probably has mechanical shifting which requires maintenance which requires new cables which requires a smooth cable path which the internal routing doesn't provide uh and that person also can't afford the massive service bill because they most likely that's why they're on a lower end bike so yeah i i completely agree that there's there's a place for this internal cable routing and i think it's at the high end and i really don't like the trickle jet ja- the trickle down that the industry will inevitably do there's no place for it the, the, it should be killed with fire the,
0: the, <laughs> well i mean like to, to kind of back up what james is saying the problem with this is that you, you put it at the high end and then everyone else wants it anyway, right? And so, like, it, it, then then you're just sort of, okay, we're just acquiescing to consumer demand to trickle this stuff down. I think you could make exactly the same, the same argument about electronic shifting, which is, like, none of us need it. It makes bikes more expensive. It doesn't really make riding any better. But because the top-end bikes have it, it starts to trickle its way down. And now 105 DI2 bikes are $8,000 right? Which makes me just want to freak out. Here's my thing. So, you know, you, a couple, well, a couple of things
1: I want to make uh, a couple of points I want to make here. So one, um, the, the Scott that I actually pictured in that article, it belongs to a buddy of mine and he paid nine grand for that thing. And he definitely has the money to have it worked on, but he hates that bike. Like he bought it, paid full retail for it, absolutely hates it because of this feature, because it'd be one thing if this were done Well, it'd be one thing if somebody were like, you know, I want to run, I want to completely hide all the lines and like, we're going to do a really sweet job of it and really think it through. It's another thing entirely to want to put this feature on a bike and do a completely half-assed job on it, which I'm sorry, Scott, like we know a lot of people there, a lot of your bikes generally are very, very good. That is not one of them because having taken that front end apart to really take, take a look at how this thing is done. Uh, that is, it's a complete disaster. There's all these little plastic bits everywhere. Nothing is held together very well. Nothing sealed at all. I mean, my buddy watches his bike and the, and the bike just fills with water. His upper headset bearing is completely rusted out and roached and he's only had it for a few months and keep in mind, we live in Colorado here and it's bone dry. So like there, there is absolutely no, if they don't even use a stainless bearing, like it's just purely for aesthetics And it is absolute garbage. It should not exist, especially not on a bike that costs that much. So I would argue that even though someone maybe does have the money who has spent that kind of money on an expensive bike, they shouldn't have to. They should expect that a bike that costs that much is well done, well engineered, well thought through. And if it's not going to be well engineered, well thought through and well done, it shouldn't exist. So if you want it, like this whole interim thing, just the whole interim thing just needs to go away. Like do it well or don't do it at all.
0: We see wireless brakes solves all of it and mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm sure right. i'm sure th- i'm sure the interim i'm
0: Come
1: sure on, the guys. interim version of wireless brakes will be great
2: can I, before we move <laughs> on up, can Jake? i make one uh vague promise which is uh in our bike reviews moving forward we will bang this drum a lot and i think we'll also especially at the entry level uh aim to cover uh expected service costs associated with these kind of features. So that there's no we're gonna be as as transparent as we can about the long term costs of of some of these aesthetic features and in turn hopefully turn people away from them when they don't make sense don't so with that, that said rent over. Yeah.
0: But it looks cool. So uh let should, should we move on to we move on to a little QA here? Yes, please folks. All right, let me turn on the little recorder. We'll do a couple a couple uh, audio questions here. and then there's a couple questions that have shown up in the text chat while we were chatting, so we'll get to those as well. All right I've just invited Robert. Hello Robert. Hi, thank you for the information about that angle stand that's uh, that's good and I can't wait for the information or the review to pop up on the website. Thanks Robert. So I have more tools question actually and right. uh, before you just say yes to the intro is do I need? Um I am wondering if the PC link tool to connect DI two to my computer would be a helpful thing to get. I have currently two DI two bikes in the garage and uh probably will be adding more as the time comes. No e-bikes mm-hmm. yet though.
2: Uh I, let me just double check the the product name on this. Um off the top of my head. It's the PC O two, is it? Which one are we talking about? Yeah, PCeO2. Okay, that's scary. That I actually got it right off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Shimano PCeO2. It's it's a shop tool. It's in Australia they're like three hundred dollars in in the US. I think they're roughly two hundred. Uh, basically, it's the only thing it offers over the top of the regular DI2 charger that allows you to actually connect to a computer as well is um, detailed diagnostics. So the, the PCEO2 uh, allows you to basically connect through the, the e-tube wire where you can connect it directly to each individual component to figure out where, say, a battery drain issue is happening or where a, a fault has occurred. Uh, for me, that's, that's kind of the limit of the usability of it, and I question whether you'll actually get any use out of it. Um, I've got one. Uh, I use it very, very occasionally, but... Truthfully, I could probably do without it as well. Uh, so yeah, I think probably not something a home mechanic needs. I think it's going to be very, very rare that you actually need the the functionality it provides. James, any thoughts? I can usually evaluate my cable actuated stuff
1: pretty pretty quickly without a computer. <laughs> no, but so but, grumpy today, James. But but, but in all <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, DI two stuff generally is pretty reliable. Um, And if you have an issue where you might even think you, where you think you might even need something like this, I think oftentimes those sorts of issues are so few and far between that you would almost be better off economically just bringing it up, bringing it to a qualified mechanic and have them diagnose it for you.
2: Yeah. The other thing that a shop has that I personally don't have, and I assume Robert, you don't have is that uh, they have spare parts to interchange and figure out where the issue is uh so you know they they'd have spare wires to to swap in to figure out if it's a wire issue or a a new derailleur whether that fixes the issue straight away uh and that's something that the pco2 kind of gets you towards it's like oh this part doesn't work and then you're like okay great now i need to try a part that does work uh and that's that's you know if you just hand it to a shop they'll they'll be able to do that for you in the the very rare occasion that that needs to be done um and it is very, very rare. Um, I've probably, yeah, again, needed it once or twice in the last six or seven years that this thing, uh,
0: the Di2 has been prolific for. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. Let's try to get Alex in again. Let's see if this works. Hello, hello. Hey, where There works. we are.
3: Success. Sorry, my uh, normal push to talk key had migrated <laughs> one key over to the right and I do not know why.
0: Very odd. What's the question?
3: My question is inspired by a recent experience I had while testing out a new tubeless setup, which is I had uh, installed the tire on a rim before building up the wheel, and I foolishly used Gorilla tape on it. And it turns out that this uh, has a special affinity for the type of rubber on the bead. And so basically they fused together, and I had to ultimately cut the tire off. So I'm down a brand new tubeless tire. So I figured, uh, I would ask if you guys know of any untoward reactions that different household items or different bike specific items have with each other that could cause something like this or, uh, a similar reaction elsewhere on the bike.
1: Uh, I, I, I haven't heard of any like chemical reactions between like of that sort of thing uh, or of that sort. Um, I will say that, uh, the vast majority of mechanics that, that I know or have spoken to would strongly recommend against using gorilla tape for tubeless tape for uh, a few reasons. Um, one, it's quite thick. Uh, it's quite a bit thicker than regular tubeless tape so your tire will tend to fit a lot tighter uh, than it really is designed to. Um, the other thing is the because of the adhesive that's used on gorilla tape is pretty thick and kind of like gooey and squirmy. Um, it actually doesn't stay in place very well. It tends to migrate and kind of wander on the rim. Um, and it, it also is not completely, um, it's not completely like sealant proof. So you do tend to get a little bit of sealant and there's some seepage of, of fluid into the rim cavity, um, and then uh, that 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 fluid seepage into the rim cavity is problematic because it, particularly if you're using aluminum nipples, it'll just corrode the nipples, and then you'll have to rebuild your whole wheel because all, all your nipples are going to start to crack. Um, but the other thing is it it does cause issues with tubeless tire fitment. Um, so um, I would definitely switch to a conventional tubeless tape. Um, I guess is you have done that already. Um, just given.
3: Yeah, give uh, just to be clear, the Gorilla Tape was a very temporary installation. I was actually inflating the tire using a tube to check chainstay clearance because this is an extremely wide setup. I'm using 47 millimeter tires on a 35 millimeter internal rim. Wow. Um, yeah, it's wide, but I got a very good deal on the rims. And uh, actually, thanks to uh, Ian's article on the Richie Outback, where he had, a, uh, I think, the exact same setup. Um, he said it was uh, a little off, but okay to live with. So hopefully that's the same for me. Um, but yeah, I only had the tire set up with a tube on there for a couple days, um, also partly to stretch out the tire for installation. And yeah, the Gorilla Tape, as you mentioned, it did squirm, and the adhesive did uh, sort of bond with the tire bead, and it was a- absolutely impossible to take off. That's so wild. like, I cut off one of the beads, and I tried to pull off the other one, and with my full body weight i could not separate it from the bead
1: i i actually wonder if it wasn't so much a like a adhesive reaction as it was just that the tire ended up fitting so tightly on the rim so
3: tightly that on that you rim. just couldn't get it yeah, off you just sure. couldn't get it off yeah. um i judging by the amount of gorilla tape that came off with the bead when i ultimately did end up cutting it off i would wager to say that there was some kind of reaction be it chemical or physical uh but regardless a lot of the Gorilla tape came up with the, yeah, the.
2: The mechanical fit between a lot of modern tubeless tires and some tubeless rims is pretty insane. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, that a lot of welter mechanics now are in the, the habit of just cutting tubeless tires off the rim because it's easier. Uh, for me, I've had to resort, I've actually got like some 3D printed jaws that fit into my bench vice that allow me to unseat certain tires. Uh, you can also, I know James, um, you're partial and I still use it, like the the, the jaws of a, a work stand are pretty good for basically squeezing the, the bead together and then use the wheel as the leverage to to push off these beads. But yeah, it can be, it gets to a point, certain combinations get to a point where it's impossible to do it by hand. Uh, you need sort of uh, additional tooling to clamp onto that tire and inevitably you'll probably end up stretching the bead of the tire in the process.
0: Team tube inside. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> Don't want to deal with yeah. it. <laughs> Interesting question. Thanks, Alex. Uh, I, I, I've never heard of that particular thing happening before, but... Mm, gorilla tape for tube not good. Tape. That's our... Yeah, that's, a, that's our two cents, I suppose. Uh, let's take... Do we have another... We have some written questions here.
2: Uh, there was a question if a, a, a tool like a bead jacker would work to remove the, the tire from the seat and uh not in my experience you need something to yeah you, there's nothing that really gets into the gap between the the rim and the the tire bead so you actually just need a full mechanical force to to break it free
0: okay well here we go so, so i was gonna say jimmy Jimmy put it, it put put the question in the uh in the chat here so i'll just read it out so uh this is less of a tech question more of a well, kind of a tech question so uh jimmy's headed to colorado from australia for the summer awesome uh which bike do you bring road gravel or hardtail and you get one event leave pass what should you do obviously james and i are both in colorado i think it kind of what do you think james it kind of depends on what part of Colorado are you in
1: i really i, I actually like if you're down I where i just, am just asked him where in colorado
0: yeah so like if you're down where i am in durango you bring a mountain bike uh oh golden. golden mountain bike for sure although the, the the gravel riding there is pretty damn good too yeah. uh road and gravel riding is pretty damn good so i don't know i, I bring would bring all the I mean, bikes can you bring more than one <laughs> can you bring three bikes <laughs> <laughs> i think you, you could basically i think you would really enjoy some big days on a gravel bike out of golden. there's some incredible riding down there um that said, there's also some really good mountain biking, like right out of town, uh, and uh, maybe you could maybe you could like pick your favorite and rent the other one a couple times or something. That
1: could work. Well, one one thing I will say, he he said he's going to be in Golden. Um, Golden is just about a half hour south of of me here in Boulder. Um, the one thing about mountain biking in Golden is it's quite rough. It's quite rocky. Um, and Jimmy said that he is going to be bringing a hardtail, um, and I I don't know a hardtail in Golden could be kind of tough put Kushkor
2: in Kushcore. Uh, <laughs> core and like two sixes so maybe yep. what yeah bring a gravel bike and rent a trail bike trail mountain bike for a few days you certainly could oh, yeah. um and there are
1: i mean <laughs> the, the companies aren't really meant to they're not really set up to do this but you know alchemy is based in golden now yeti is in golden um i it's certainly possible that you could rent slash demo some bikes while you're down there that's certainly a possibility um but i don't know if you're going to be there for a whole summer um for for me i don't know i i feel like a hardtail would be more versatile because while there is a lot of good gravel riding down there you can certainly do that on a hardtail um, but however you cannot take a gravel bike on any of the good trails in golden
0: no way no no chance uh we're down to 4% <laughs> so i'm going to cut it off all right we're gonna cut sounds it off good right there uh yeah thank you everybody for your questions today uh we will, I, we one of these weeks soon maybe we do next week or the week after we're going to do an entire episode full of questions we'll take a whole bunch beforehand uh obviously you'll have to be in the member discord to participate in that so if you're not already a member head over to EscapeCollective.cc and sign up as a reminder that is how we fund this entire operation uh the three of us here sitting in front of you that's how that's how we get to actually make a living doing this which is wild and without all of the member support then we just cease to exist so if you haven't signed up already please do so Uh, and and by we Kelly means escape collective not we as people yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to to be clear to be very clear alright thanks everybody for listening this week we'll be back with another one next week and keep an eye out if uh, if you are a member keep an eye out for our next live show probably in uh, two or three weeks time alright bye everybody bye bye